Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. It's Tuesday. That means we're talking with the prince of Twitter, the regent of redstate.com, Andrew Mac- Malcolm. Yeah, I could spit that out. Andrew Malcolm. I've only said that every single week for the last, I don't know, 14 years. And, uh, <laughs> apparently having some problems, Andrew. Yeah, well, I that that's typical for Minnesotans. Ah, but I'm no longer a Minnesotan. <laughs> I know you should be overcoming that. I, I should be overcoming uh, that. I'm in Texas, baby. I should. Be, all this stuff should just roll right off my tongue, along with all the draws and everything else like that. But not there y'all, yet. Y'all, y'all, y'all. How y'all doing today? How y'all doing? I still can't get in that. It still feels uh, awkward. But uh, it's probably because uh, I'm not Southern. Yeah, We're, we both moved to Southern states not being southerners and so it's going yeah. to be it's going to be a little bit of an adjustment for us Andrew. i do love i do love the culture though it's uh, great it, it's uh i live in a small town near a big city but uh, a small town and the culture of hello and waving and, and uh, friendly and people suspecting the best until proven wrong instead of suspecting the worst right uh, yeah it is it's really different putting their shield up uh to everybody on the street and it's it takes some getting used to uh but boy it's delightful it I, is delightful I, people here are yeah. delightful too same way very yeah. friendly they want to be your friends they want to talk to you it's great um We've really enjoyed we've really enjoyed the move, and I think if we'd gone the other direction, we would have been really um, a little disappointed. Uh, we love Minnesota, by the way. I mean, we we have no complaints about Minnesota, but I think if we'd if we'd come to Texas then gone up to Minnesota, I think more than the weather would have disappointed us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean it, it's it's I've moved around a lot, and it's it's part of the different cultures, and I yeah. I appreciate all of them, but I. I prefer uh, the southern one. It's just so, or actually, rural is rural. Southern is extra, right. f- extra friendly. But rural, I mean, America is is uh, is just open and and friendly. And yeah. and uh, I, of course, I grew up in a small town. So, uh, in fact, our pharmacy, they uh, the pharmacy, and it's gone now. But the pharmacy in the small town, they let the uh, the kids. Uh, park their bikes or they let the kids use the phone the pharmacy phone to call home if it was raining to get a ride home um uh, as long as and this is important harvey wanted everybody to not park their bikes in front of the drugstore you had to put them in another place and that way the old people getting their prescription didn't fall over them so if you parked your bike in front of the store, you didn't get the call home in the rain. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, that's just incentives. <laughs> that's, that's just setting right. up incentives. You know, I, I, I just I want to emphasize this. The people in Minnesota are wonderful people. Um, and I, we, we were there for 23 plus years and we, we made a lot of great friends up there. It is a different sort of feeling down here, though. It's It, it really is. It's... Um, uh, and and so it's just it's 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 delightful as you said it's delightful so I just want to want to be yeah. clear that I I have no complaints at all it's just different and I'm appreciating the differences right now so um, 
With that being said, um, you know, I didn't grow up in a small town, Andrew, but I, I have a bone to pick with you because I did do um, plays in high school. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I was in, I was, you know, for three of the four years I was, well, actually all four years, <clears throat> I was either in plays or in, in the drama classes. And so I, I read your VIP um, column over at redstate.com with a great deal of interest, the headline of which is, Witnessing Joe Biden's amateur act these days is like attending a school play. Right. Well, all right, be, mister. You're going yeah, to to be clear. It's a it's a elementary school play. Oh, it, it says fourth grade okay. in there. And I'm not I'm not chastised. I was in I, too, was in a, uh, high school plays. No time for sergeants. And uh, oh, nice. OK. Yeah. And uh, so. I, I know I know the uh, the jitters and and all of that, but all um, right, uh, you know I'm 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 a little but concerned. You, but when you have when you have fourth graders that have grade tended into their the side of their head to make them look old, and they're wearing their dad's tie and a fedora, and it's, talking, it's just hard to believe. Just like the Biden crowd. Well, the, <laughs> that should say the. Um, the the what is it what do they call them the the Biden presidential players, who've who've <laughs> taken their who've who've taken their troop to Europe now for this week. Uh yeah, this is um, and by the way, our our our, our contributor Karen Townsend's writing that Jill Biden is mis is skipping the G seven part of the summit and moving over to Spain, which leads me to wonder what disasters are going to befall the Biden uh, the Biden community theater players this week, but. Oh. Um, well, yeah, that's I mean, his, his wife went there to begin with. Right, right. But I mean, she's not going to be around while he's over there. And she's she's the one that kind of gets him out of jams over there. She pulls yeah. him away from reporters. And you stuff remember, like remember last year when they met in Cornwall and uh, there was that wonderful video that a patron in the restaurant took of the president of the United States wandering lost in the patio restaurant and people looking around like, wait, there's there's no guards there's no it's just joe lost until you see jill in the background running from the garden party up the steps to grab joe and take him back that's a familiar scene well it's because they didn't have the easter bunny there for that one so they oh, joe biden had, joe biden had to take right. care of it that's right but you that's know what right. the difference is and, and, and again this is another bone i've got to pick with you about this about this column you know, Andrew, there's just so many different ways that I've got a bone to pick with you about this. Yeah. You know what? You know what you don't see is you don't see those fourth graders holding up the script in their hand. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And turning it around so the audience can see, act like an adult. Well, I, what, right. what was that? What was the cue Wasn't cards? That Isn't that amazing? Do you think that it, any it, other do you think that any other presidents actually needed that? sort of instruction i mean i don't know maybe every president gets that from their staff but do you think no, do you think so no. what the the only thing that i'm familiar with is that they they put and you can't see it but they put um colored duct tape on the floor um and uh because the cameras have already sighted in uh so they put colored duct tape on the on the floor uh potus uh flotus and the names of other people so they know where to stand and they don't have to do this no you go first you go first you go first so they they get up they go to the place but to have a note in your hand that says go into the roosevelt room greet 
the people with hello then take a seat take your seat i mean it's it's painful it's absolutely painful and that's what made me think of the grade school play well uh, yes you know generally speaking the, the kids don't carry the script out on the stage with them they you know sometimes the they, teachers are coaching them from from below like, saying yeah from from behind in the in the yeah. curtain they go then what do you do mom <laughs> yeah it's cute yeah it's yeah, cute it when, and, it's cute and when you're eight stands up yeah grandparents and they all stand up and applaud standing oh at the end because they're kids and there are kids but it's the president of the united states and yeah. he needs he needs a, a drama coach to tell him to say hello to people Whew. yeah i mean that that uh you know, our, our colleague over at Red State, Nick Arama, wrote about that uh, last week. Uh, I mean, that's that's disturbing in and of itself. And the fact that Joe Biden thought it was a good idea to flash it towards the reporters so they could take a picture of it is. Yeah. Well, there was weird. something on the see the, the Ed aide wrote something else on the back of it. So not he doesn't think, but still not thinking. He turned it around to read his notes on the back and a photographer snapped it. It's just, uh, well, you know, um, uh, Trump did that one time. He didn't show it, but the photographers were over his shoulder and took a picture of don't, do not congratulate Putin. And then he went ahead. I remember and, that, yes. And, and he did. He went ahead and congratulated Putin anyway because he doesn't like to be told what to do. Yeah, it wasn't a smart idea, but, you know, whatever. No, um, no. But, uh, yeah, I do recall that. All right. Well, you can get more of that, by the way, from redstate.com. If you have a bone to pick with Andrew, though, you can find him on at A.H. Malcolm on Twitter. I just am throwing that out there, but yeah, go read his column right. first. Don't pick the bone before you've clicked the link, folks. Just That's right. Just read That's the right. column first before you start before you start picking at it. That's All right. right. Big momentous stuff happened since, the la since last we talked, right? We've got three big um, Supreme Court decisions that came down. Really, on three successive days, Thursday we had uh, Bruin, which was the uh, gun uh, gun rights case out of New York, where Clarence Thomas wrote right, wrote for the majority and struck down the uh, May issue statute in New York um, for gun permits, carry permits. Uh, today it was Kennedy versus Bremerton, which is uh, about praying um, at a coach who prayed on the. At midfield after a game was over, who got fired for supposedly violating establishment clause prohibitions, the Supreme Court said that was nonsense today, and uh, and found in favor of the coach. But the big deal, the big Kahuna, obviously, is the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe, and it was the end of the world as we know it. Andrew, um, I I have to tell you this, and I know this is going to just rock your world, almost li <laughs> almost literally, Andrew. Uh, because I know that you're a big Green Day fan, and uh, Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day uh, says, "F America, I'm renouncing my effing American citizenship." Uh, apparently, he's going to go live in Europe, where abortion laws are even stricter than in the United States. <laughs> I, yeah. you know, there's so much. There is so much bad reporting on this. On what this decision actually did, on what it actually meant, on the yeah. basis on which it was found. Um, that you probably didn't, a lot of people, you know, of course, the people who are watching this are smarter because they're watching this. Um, but a lot of yeah. people who consumed other media other than, you know, Red State and Hot Air, 
um, probably walked away thinking that the Supreme Court had made abortion illegal in all 50 states. Well, yeah, that was yeah, absolutely exactly. not what happened. And the chirons on CNN and even on BBC, which is usually better than that, say, you know, Supreme Court strikes down abortion rights. No, no, no. Um, I don't know what to say. The media is, uh, even the media that we normally respect for being somewhat less biased is uh, falling off the falling off the truck here. Um, and uh, there's a lot of people. And what it, what it, what that uh, misleading headlines and what they do is they cause people to fall into their favored merit narrative. Right. You know, they expected it to be to be banned. So they will think it's banned and they will be angrier than they need to be because it's gone back to the states where it belongs. Uh, and I mean, that's what happens in a federal system like ours. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, people were talking about this as if it was the end of democracy. I mean, they were actually saying they were arguing this is the end of democracy. When the result of this is literally that it's going to go back to the democratic institutions rather than the ju judicial institutions, the leg legislature, and, you know, to a certain extent, the executives too, the executive branches as well. But, I mean, this is going back to the people. It's going back to the people's branch, the legislatures. Um, well, you, know, you know, the I, I did, a, an, I've been doing these short little audio commentaries at Red State for the past few months, and uh, they're really kind of fun. Uh, and one of them that I did recently was about, um, um, I don't know, I forget what it was about, but it was about what we're talking. Oh, I know about the states yeah. and, and, and the fact that it's going back where uh, these decisions um, belong in, 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 what was it? 1983, was it? Or 70, 73, 1973 with the Roe versus Wade, the Burger court found the right to abortion in the constitution from the 18th century, um, which wasn't an easy task. But what <laughs> my, but my point in the, in the commentary was when the court legislates like that, the country wasn't ready for it. So we've been sentenced to a half century of discord and anger. Now, fast forward to 2017 and the gay marriage decision. Yep. There's not been the great tumult about it because the court recognized that society had changed. And whether you agree with it or not, most people thought, well, okay. And the court was not shoving it down the throat as they would have even 10 years ago. Right. Uh, and uh, that's the difference. And that's how the, the court played a major role in this. This, in fact, there were some deaths, right? There were some deaths over the over, over this uh, in in the ensuing years that uh, I mean, it's sad, but the court was dictating ahead of what the society was prepared to accept. Well, and I think that the, the, I mean, I think you put your finger on what the fundamental problem was, and, the, and it's the fundamental problem that Alito cited in this, which is that the court dictated in the first place. You know, the, there's yeah. nothing in the Constitution about abortion. 
And so under those circumstances, according to the text of the Constitution, anything that's not found in the Constitution belongs to the states or to the people. And it isn't for the judiciary to create policy on that. Um, and and that's that was the fundamental error in, in Roe, was that the court decided that they, they should create a policy on something that was not mentioned, not even obliquely mentioned in the Constitution, um, rather than let legislatures create laws and then make sure that they, that they worked within whatever constitutional provisions it might touch. Um, and that was a, that was an extreme, um, it was an extreme judicial activist moment in the court. And it's been a disaster ever since you have had nothing but these continued legal fights where the Supreme court keeps having to basically, you know, tweak policy, which is not something the Supreme court is supposed to be doing at all, but they're the only ones who can do it or until, until Friday, they were the only ones who could do it because of Roe and Casey that followed after Roe. They vacated both Roe, Casey. They also vacated Doe. I, I don't know if they even um, mentioned it, but basically by, you know, by process, they vacated Doe, which was a companion um, ruling at the time of Roe, which also had implications for how the Supreme Court um, reacted to these laws. And again, all this does is say, the Supreme Court made a huge mistake in taking this on. It really needs to just go back to legislatures. It can go to Congress. It can go to state legislatures. Um, and again, I mean, you, you you see the reaction around, you know, the Whoopi Goldbergs of the world don't bother me as much. I mean, it's certainly fun to talk about how Whoopi Goldberg uh, reacts to things, you know, Whoopi Goldberg reacting to... Um, uh, you know, t telling Clarence Thomas he better be uh, prepared to go back to being one quarter of a person. It was actually three fifths, but <laughs> yeah. it's, it, uh, in a section that was repealed by constitutional amendment many, many years ago. Um, you know, like a hundred and what, hundred and fifty something years ago now, uh, in the thirteenth, fourteenth, and fifteenth amendments. But um, the um, I I don't you know. We can criticize that. We can have we can poke fun at that. But the media not uh, not really doing its due diligence and at least no. reading the opinions. And I'm not just talking about anchors, right? I'm talking about the people that they hire who are, you know, supposed legal um, experts in this. Uh, when I think this was brewing, I have to I'll I'll, do, I'll double check this. But CNN's Jeffrey Tubin, who's got a job some somehow still has a job on CNN, even after all the nonsense that, you know, he was caught doing on a Zoom call. Um, but um, managed to get and I can't remember if it was Bruin or if it was I think it was Bruin managed to get basically every single thing wrong in about a one minute span of his chief legal analyst analysis on CNN when. I, I was sitting there reading. I had already read the. I'd already read it. I'd read the, the the dissents, and nothing he said had anything to do with the decision. It was just. Um, I mean, it was. It was just. What bizarre. you do is, yeah, it's what you do. It's like the shooting in Buffalo. What you do is, you see something happen, and then if it fits, even just a minor slice of your preferred narrative, you take it as proof. Right. So this is. This was, I'll just read this to you. I'm not even, I'm not even going to bother playing it because I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can make it work so that you can hear it anyway. So, 
but but this is this is it was the it was the Bruin thing. This was Jeffrey Tubin's um, analysis. You know we we know that in the United States you have the right under the First Amendment to say pretty much anything anywhere because we have freedom of speech in the United States. What the conservatives on the Supreme Court are saying is that we want the Second Amendment to be a first class right like the First Amendment, and we want to be able to carry guns anywhere, anytime, without any sort of regulation by the government, without background checks, without restrictions on where you can take a weapon, without restrictions on how you can carry a weapon. Now, they haven't gone that far yet, but they're clearly moving in that direction. And, you know, we can't separate this issue from what's going on in the world where we have a tremendous problem with gun violence in this country. We have mass shootings. We have 18-year-olds with access to AR-14s, um, 15s. And the Supreme Court is moving in the direction of saying that the government cannot regulate that traffic at all. Which was <laughs> every single thing in that, in that statement, with the exception of now they haven't gone that far yet is absolutely provably false and all you have to do is read the read um the um the bruin decision uh, by clarence thomas uh to find that out first off well, there's no such thing as a first class right i don't even know this guy's a legal expert and nobody that i know of has ever heard of a supposed first class right i actually googled this andrew and again, this is on CNN, right? This is CNN's chief legal correspondent. I Googled the term first class right and constitution together, right? Um, it had one hit <laughs> on Google, mind you, and one hit on, um, on, on, on Thursday. It has two hits today. So apparently it dug up something from 2013 that it didn't, that Google didn't find. There's no such thing as a first-class right as opposed to a second-class right as opposed to a third-class right. Yeah. I mean, you don't even have to be an attorney to understand that. you got Jeffrey Tubin on CNN talking about this stuff completely incompetently. Well, I'm hoping that this new manager at CNN, um, that that is part of his consideration when he's cleaning a house. It, it's, it's just shabby. And if you're if you're not an informed consumer of news, um, triangulating, reading other sources, you'll go away misinformed and angrier or happier than you should be. Right, right, exactly. And and I think that this is very true with with uh, both of these decisions, and yeah. maybe to a certain extent the one today too. Although I, you know. I'll say I haven't actually watched a lot of the media reaction to Kennedy versus Bremerton, which is, again, this is the um, case where the coach was praying on his own. And I think he was joined by a few people on the team at, at midfield after a game, after a high school game, got fired for it. Um, I don't know that I've seen a lot of media reaction to that. I'm sure it's out there. Um, I just haven't been interested in hearing how the media is freaking out about this. I'm sure it's all about <laughs> theocracies. Um but again, this is just a, a case of understanding that there's a tension between, and this is what Neil Gorsuch wrote about, there's a tension between different aspects of constitutional rights and responsibilities. The Establishment Clause is a, an important constitutional uh, issue, but so is the First Amendment freedom of speech and First Amendment freedom to re religious expression. And so just because something somebody does something on a public field like saying a prayer to himself <laughs> doesn't mean that the state is establishing a religion. 
yeah. it, does, it doesn't mean that there's a theocracy in place here. I mean, and, and Gorsuch called for, you know, there's got to be some common sense to the applications of these things. And I think that the, the industry that's least capable of applying that common sense is the modern American media. Yeah, they, uh, they've always been um, weak on science and uh, especially medical, but especially weak on religion and faith. They just, it, if you can't see it and you can't quote it, then it's all pretend fantasy. Uh, and that's the way, that's the way they've covered it uh, with a kind of a looking down condescension all right, well, these people believe these things um, or say they do. And then always bringing in Scientology for some reason. Yes, yes. Um, all right, I want to I pick up one more thing. It's over at Red State. just came up today. But it, I think this is based on some things that, um, that came up over the weekend. Um, David Mastio had been, had been at least, the opinion editor over at uh, USA Today, uh, which is, you know, the big Gannett, the, the biggest of the Gannett newspaper um, properties. And Gannett announced a week ago or so, we talked about this, I think, in the last podcast, yeah. that they're getting rid of the opinion section. And um, Mastio um, was... Mastio decided that now that the, now that the yoke is off... In other words, he's out of a job there anyway. He was going to reveal that USA Today tried to shut him down um, it, uh, and forced him to delete offensive tweets that had the wildly offensive notion behind them that biological women are women and non-biological women are not women. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, 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 apparently the, the woke workplace was... Um, was was at work here and he says now i've been an opinion journalist for 30 years i thought i was authorized to have opinions the 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 idea that women are the ones who get pregnant has gone from scientific fact to opinion to outright falsehood in the blink of an eye um the lgbtq employee resource group in the newsroom diversity committee thought i should be fired uh that makes me worry no i don't worry for me i'll be fine i am a cis hetero white male with all the privilege that goes with it as i have learned in my gannett mandated diversity training uh, to yeah. even complain on my behalf would be a microaggression, as I also learned in Gannett training. <laughs> um, microaggression. Oh. I mean, this well, is... Well, that's what you did to me, Ed. That's what you did to me earlier, saying you had a bone to pick. That that's was a, a microaggression. That was a macroaggression, Andrew. That oh, was a macro... macro. That was a macroaggression. Well, that was just Okay, well, maybe aggression. those are okay. I think those are, actually. Oddly if enough... It's a, if it's a big macroaggression, that's okay. But a microaggression, I can't put up with them. It's like being pecked to death. I, I, apparently, yes. It's, it's exactly what it's like. I mean... This is absurd, right? I mean, the yeah. idea that it, that not just somebody you pay for opinions, but the guy who runs the opinion section for you can't have an opinion, can't no. publicly express an opinion, is insane. Well, remember, that's what the New York Times uh, op-ed guy and his assistant um, got fired for. Uh, they were hired to make the op-ed page more diverse. Yep. So they did with Tom Cotton, and it, there was a big revolution in the in the woke newsroom, and they they got fired. So 
this is a contagion and uh, every day now it seems i you know there's a cartoon uh on twitter of you know a metronome from a piano and uh on one side it says uh i'm i'm happy and the future is great and on the other side it says we are so totally screwed and the metronome is going back and forth so i'm waiting for the metronome to go back to the we have a great happy future ahead side <laughs> i don't think it'll be soon diversity and tolerance that's what we need and yeah. if you if you don't support diversity and tolerance by by believing exactly everything that we believe <laughs> you are cast off you are cast off the island <laughs> I, I know isn't that i mean it, it, we're diverse as long as you agree. Yeah. Um, wait a minute. Isn't that an oxymoron? I mean, it's like you and I are able to work together every week for 14 years, and you are a Steelers fan, and and I'm a Browns fan, and I still put up with it. Of course, I black out, <laughs> I, I black out your face on the screen here. But. Well, you know, it's uh, that's tolerance. That's actually tolerance. It's uh, it's not yeah. acceptance. It's not celebration. It's just tolerance. I've tolerated Andrew Malcolm for fourteen years because <laughs> and his and his Cleveland obsession because why? Because he's awesome. That's why. Because he is a great guy and a great uh, friend. Absolutely, that's me. Other than the Cleveland Brown stuff, you know, it's uh, except for that and that whole thing about school plays. But other than that, Andrew is great. All right. Speaking of which, we're at the end of this episode. We've got to get the uh, jokes of the week. Andrew Malcolm. Well, um, these are all old ones because for some reason they're not sending them to me anymore and I can't stand to watch the shows that that late. A Conan replay. He says, NSA leaker Edward Snowden. Remember him, man? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a name from the NSA leaker Edward Snowden has been staying the last two days in Moscow's airport. Not because he's hiding, because he's flying United. (laughs) Uh, And Seth Meyers uh, replay, he says, today was National Hug Your Cat Day. There were no survivors. (laughs) Uh, Let's see, I got another one. Um, And um, uh, Fallon replays, as a Kansas man robbed a bank, so he could get away from his wife in jail. But the judge just sentenced him to six months of house arrest. <laughs> well, there you, you go. You thought it couldn't get any worse, buddy. Exactly. It, it just got a whole lot worse. But you know, it's a whole lot better any day that we can have Andrew Malcolm, the prince of Twitter. That's at a- Absolutely. At A.H. Malcolm. I'll try not to screw that up this time. Um, and, of course, the region of redstate.com. Go to redstate.com, and you'll find Andrew Malcolm's work over there. Andrew, thanks so much for another great uh, another great podcast episode, and we'll talk next week. Okay, that's when we're going to go to 15 years, right, Ed? Yeah, I think we, I think we should be going to 15 years, we right? Should make, we, we should be able to make that. Um, okay, thanks, Ed. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. See you next week. Stand by for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. I am really happy to introduce you Mike Summers, who works for the American Petroleum Institute. He's the president and CEO, actually, of API. 
We're going to talk about their new 10-point policy plan to restore U.S. energy leadership and fuel economic recovery. The use of the word fuel there is clearly pun intended. Mike, welcome back. Great talking to you after, after doing the Hugh Hewitt show. Great talking to you again here. Great to be with you, Ed. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, me too. Me too. And you know what? Unfortunately, you know, in, in good times when people aren't messing around with uh, energy policy and tinkering with it and trying to uh, and trying to go through incredible transitions, uh, we don't need to write a whole lot about energy policy. It more or less runs itself based on market principles and and you know simple but effective uh, regulation. And you know, here in Texas, uh, you know. We're a big oil producing state here. There's certainly lots of room for discussion about how you how you regulate things, how you make sure that things stay clean, all that sort of thing. What you don't have here in Texas is a great debate as to whether or not you should pull the oil out in the first place, whether or not you should refine it. <laughs> I think everybody here kind of likes the idea of having the power on and being able to put gas in the car. Unfortunately, that isn't the case in some other places, most notably Washington, D.C. What's going on? What's What's going wrong right now in energy policy? Well, I do think in many ways that you really hit it on at the top. Uh, you know, we've been in this his, this uh, real this holiday uh, from energy history over the course of the last few years, and it's really because of what this industry has done uh, over the course of the last decade. I mean, if you think about the fact when you and I were growing up, we were really dealing with an, an era of energy scarcity, particularly when it comes to oil and gas. And you know, we were talking about how uh, we were dealing with uh, a deficit, particularly of oil uh, in the late 70s. But something happened um, about a decade ago where this country suddenly figured out how to find more oil and gas in the ground. And it really was because of the innovation from the great oil and gas industry here in the United States. There was you know, what we refer to as the fracking revolution. Right. Uh, the, the energy industry, the oil and gas industry was able to figure out a way to get more oil and gas out of the ground from previously from previous wells that, that they didn't think there was any oil left in. Uh, that's not because there was a government program. That's not because there was a government mandate, but it was uh, innovators, particularly those in Texas, uh, that were able to figure this new technology out. And so for the past decade, uh, this country has been uh, the world's energy leader. We uh, overtook both Russia and Saudi Arabia as the largest producer of oil and gas uh, in the world. And what that has meant for American consumers is that while prices were going up for almost every other part of their lives, whether it was healthcare or education or housing, uh, in the previous decade, household energy costs actually went down, which is an amazing, amazing statistics. Household energy costs actually went down 14% over that previous decade, whereas uh, costs for almost everything else were going up. Imagine the economy that we would have had over the previous decade if energy prices were rising at the same level as housing costs or, or costs for education. Uh, and it's only because of the energy in industry here in the United States. So in about in 2008, the United States was producing about 6 million barrels of oil every single day. And that number was, was going down dramatically every single week. And then the fracking revolution came around. And because the government decided to take a hands-off approach, uh, we were able to continue to increase. And just last month, we uh, actually eclipsed the 12 million barrels of oil every single day that we produced, uh, but we can go up further. In fact, pre-pandemic, we were producing about 13 million barrels of oil every single day. And uh, we know that we can hit that number again if we allow 
uh, American producers and American innovators to do what they do best, which is to innovate and to produce more oil and gas here uh, in our great country. Unfortunately, a lot of the policies that have been advanced by this administration and by the Congress that is currently in control uh, are doing the exact opposite, which is to restrict American supply and, and consumers are seeing the result of those policies now. So, I mean, we, we're hearing a lot of conflicting claims. Now, m much of which you can probably refute simply by going online and looking at things like, you know, quarterly reports for oil companies, even the, even the major oil companies, right? <clears throat> which I spent like several days doing at Hot Air, uh, trying to track down the idea that there's windfall profits being made. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are, you know, that the that the oil companies were driving the price of at the pump or setting the price at the pump, I should say. Uh, not really. There are some interesting aspects though to this, um, to this particular um, price bubble, I guess you could call it, uh, which is that there seems to be a. I'm not sure what the best way to put this is, Mike, but there seems to be not necessarily as clear a connection between the price of a barrel of oil and the price of gasoline, right? And you, you hear this quite a bit. It's like, well, you know, they can talk about the obstacles that we're throwing in front of them, and and we we will get to that when we get to your ten point plan. But you know the the price of a you know the price of gasoline you know three months ago uh, is what a buck and a half um, higher, but the price of oil is fairly close to the same. Is that certainly not a a, a big um, difference? To that first off, I'll just ask you, what's why is why do you why do consumers see that happening and and uh, can we expect this to sort of balance out some point yeah so i mean really what we're getting at here is is really the the price of gasoline does of course track the the price of of oil but something else is going on within the marketplace right and what's going on is uh over the course of the last couple of years uh, there have been a number of of, of uh, major American refineries that have come offline or they've switched from uh, uh, using oil as their primary feedstock to using other feedstocks to produce so-called renewable diesel. So uh, what we've seen is since the pandemic has happened, there are about 11 refineries that have either shut down in the United States or they've switched uh, to producing uh, diesel uh, with a different kind of feedstock. Um, the consequence of that is, is that uh, we don't have enough refining capacity in the United States right now to meet demand, both in the United States and beyond. Uh, but really, you know, a lot of that is not because, uh, you know, these, these companies decided they want to shut down refineries, but because of government mandates. So the reason why two refineries in the West Coast, for example, switched from using crude oil as their primary feedstock to using things like, like uh, corn oil as their feedstock or methane from uh, from uh, a, a trash dump. Uh, the reason that they have done that is not because it made economic sense, but because there's an economic incentive program, a government incentive program in the state of California called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard to make that switch. Here's the most important part about it, that uh, those refineries were previously producing a lot of gasoline and diesel and jet fuel for uh, Americans use. But when you make that switch, you're only producing 10% of what you previously produced when, when using crude oil as a feedstock. So those refineries are down 90% in terms of their capacity, all because of a government incentive program. It has nothing to do with, with, with market economics. And 
In addition to that, right. you've had a couple of other refineries that have just gone offline as a consequence of economic decisions. Clean Air Act, um, you know, other regulations have made this very difficult to continue operating a refinery in the United States. And by the way, we haven't built a refinery in the United States since 1977. So, okay, so wait a minute, I got to stop you right there because I was telling this to somebody we were just talking before we, we started recording. Is I, I actually had lunch with a with with a friend of a friend who used to run a. Um, I used to run a gas station, right? And I told him that we haven't built a refinery since 1977. He thought I was making that up um, because he actually thought it was longer ago than we that, since we built a refinery. I have to ask you, what did we, I, I just need this as a trivia answer, Mike. You got to help me out here. What was the refinery we built in 1977? It was uh, an ExxonMobil uh, refinery in Beaumont, Texas, not too far from where you are now. Well, well there you go. Um, and, and interestingly, <laughs> that refinery, they're actually expanding it right now by about 150,000 barrels of production a day right now. So, you know, there are companies like ExxonMobil and Valero are both ones that are expanding refineries now to meet current demand. But those are long-term projects. As you know, it takes a long time to get a permit. Yep. It takes a long time uh, to get these things through a regulatory process. And certainly this administration hasn't helped us get through that process at this point. You know, and, and Mike, I mean, I think this is a huge point here. And it gets to... It gets to the basics of what you want to do in your 10-point plan, which we are definitely going to get to. We paid it kind of short shrift, unfortunately, on the UHO because of time constraints, but I'm going to make sure we have at least 15 minutes to discuss this. Right. Um, but this gets to, I think, what is the central conceit of the, and I call it the dipstick demagoguery just because I, you know, I like alliteration. Um, uh, uh, but um, of, of, of Joe Biden in particular, but the left is that, they're saying, well, you know, they get billions of dollars every year in, in profits and they're not putting it back into into the production, in, into, you know, expansion, you know, that, that sort of thing, um, refining. And the answer to that is there's no point in investing that money if you're going to try to shut these things down in three or four years. And I, I believe it was... Um, Jake Tapper, who was talking with uh, Jennifer Granholm. No, it was John Berman, excuse me. It was CNN, but it was John Berman. Talking with Jennifer Granholm saying, uh, well, how do you tell oil companies to invest a whole lot of money in these multi-year projects if you're still talking about shutting them down? And Granholm kind of didn't have an answer for that. But I mean, that's really what the crux of the problem here is, is that you've got an administration and a Congress really at this point in time that's aiming at uh, at shutting this industry down in the next few years, while at the same time saying you need to spend all your money right now in expanding these facilities because gas prices are a political problem for us. I mean, it just <laughs> the numbers, those numbers certainly don't add up. You can't expand refineries like that without having a 10-year return sort of yes. expectation, right? I mean, it's not even a five-year return on these. It's yes. more like 10-year return. Yeah, these, um, are, these are multi-billion dollar uh, kinds of investments Right. And when you have a government that continually says that this industry isn't even going to be around in 2030 and that they want to transition to uh, you know, different kinds of fuel sources, it makes it very difficult for you to get even financing for these kinds of projects. So yes, oil and gas companies are investing more now. You know, uh, Chevron has committed, for example, to produce 15% more oil in the prolific Permian Basin, for example. But uh, I, I, the government can help just by changing the tone and recognizing what the world recognizes, that this industry is going to be a lot around for 100 plus years. I'll give you just one example of that. The International Energy Agency, um, which is the you know uh, agency of record in terms of uh, energy supplies going forward. This is funded by just about every country in, in the United Nations. 
They even say that even if every country were to meet its commitments under the Paris Climate Accords, we're still going to be getting 50% of our energy from oil and gas in 2050. So the real question that lawmakers have to answer is not where we're going to, not whether we're going to be using oil and gas. We are. Everyone knows that. The question is where you're going to get it from. And right. I think our answer is you should be getting it from the United States, which produces this oil and gas in the most responsible way possible um, for a world that is going to be hungry for it for decades and decades to come. So let's answer that question first. Where do you want to get the oil and gas? And I think the clear answer is the United States. And what that means is, is that our government has to say, we support this industry, one, because it supports 11 million jobs in the United States, and two, it's investable. It has, and it's going to be investable for decades and decades into the future because we're going to need this source of power going forward. We are going to need this, and it's not to the exclusion of other forms of power either. I mean, exactly I, right. I mean, I think that uh, you know, American Petroleum Institute is obviously it's representing a petroleum industry, but a lot of the same players that are in the petroleum industry are also working in renewables, right? Yes. I mean, they're they're investing in renewables. They're 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 actually building renewables. Nobody is opposed to renewables, but they want to make sure that uh, people that, that these are used in a mix that is sustainable and and is also scalable. I mean, this is the the other the other problem with with some of the renewables is that they're not easily scalable, yeah. whereas refineries can be. Uh, you know, oil production can be uh, scalable. Well, that's that that really is a key point. You know, I want to bring back a term that we actually used in uh, you know uh, the 2008, 2009, 2010 period when I was actually working in public policy like this, where we talked about all of the above energy. Yes. Um, where you know we are going to need all sources of power to power the, the the future, but I like to say that you know all of the above doesn't mean none of the below. Uh, and what that means is that we're going to continue to need oil and gas for far into the future. We acknowledge that there are going to be re more renewables in the marketplace. We know there's going to be more wind. We know there's going to be more solar. There's going to be all sorts of new energy sources. What the opponents of the oil and gas industry won't acknowledge, however, is that oil and gas is going to be a, a key component of that. And that's what I would ask from them is just an acknowledgement that, as the IEA has said, that oil and gas is going to be a key part of the energy future going forward. And I think if they acknowledge that, we could actually have an adult conversation about the kind of energy that we're going to need going forward. Well, Mike Summers, let's have that adult conversation right now. Not that this is going to be a terribly a, a terribly contentious argument because I, I, <laughs> I happen to like the idea of all of the above and having oil and natural gas and coal, for that matter, as part I of that see. nuclear energy as being part of that. And I think that that's, uh, that may be the most dynamic uh, way to expand our, um, our energy footprint in the United States. Uh, certainly, if you're concerned about carbon emissions, it's probably the best scalable option that we have. And you're even seeing some of the people who have opposed that um, for a long time starting to come around on that. But but let's let's focus on the API's 10-point um, uh, plan, which you can yep. find, by the way, at api.org and then just follow to the 10-point plan. They're, they're, they're heavily promoting this. You should be able to find it from the front page. And so um, the 10-point plan, the very first thing that is on this is probably the most obvious one, lift development restrictions on federal lands and waters. 
Yeah. So uh, the first day of the Biden administration, they actually put in a plan uh, where they decided to pause all leasing and permitting on federal lands and in federal waters. Um, this was a real tragedy because uh, we really do use our federal lands. They're meant to be used in a way that uh, is multi-use for, for both recreation and for resource development. That's that was you know part of what Congress uh, developed when they when they were developing the federal lands policy. Um, so we want to make sure that we're continuing to use those federal lands in ways that uh, promote both uh, recreation and uh, use for uh, energy development. One of the most important parts of that, um, of course, is uh, the what we do on, on federal lands, but also what we do in federal waters. All those land, all those waters in the Gulf of Mexico, those are federal waters that we're able to develop our resources in. We get about 15% of America's oil from the Gulf of Mexico. Unfortunately, what the Biden administration has put into place is that we're not even leasing any new uh, 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 parts of, of the Gulf of Mexico at this time. Uh, they have to put in place what's called a five-year plan. And that right. five-year plan was expires on June 30th in two days. Um, they were supposed to have a new five-year plan in place by June 30th, and instead they haven't even kicked off uh, the development of that new plan. And there are lots of rumors, including a story in the New York Times just Friday, that they may decide that they don't want to do any new leases uh, during that five-year period, which would be an absolute disaster for American oil and gas development. So uh, the, the first thing that we'd ask them to do is just have some lease sales, both onshore and offshore. Uh, at this time in the Biden in the uh, uh, Obama administration, they'd already had 44 lease sales, both onshore and offshore. Um, and uh, unfortunately, this administration has ex had exactly zero. So I don't think it's too much to ask to go back to the Obama era uh, and request Obama's uh, vice president to do what his president uh, in 2008 uh, uh, and beyond was doing, which was actually do what the law says and have some lease sales both onshore and offshore. All right. Number two, designate critical energy infrastructure projects. Um, I would assume that uh, Keystone XL may have fallen under this uh, category, but it certainly wouldn't be the only one that we're talking about here. Yeah. So let me just give you an example of when the America actually did this and did it right. Um, in 1977, the United States Congress actually designated the development of a pipeline. It was called the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, an 800-mile yeah. pipeline from the North Slope down to Prudhoe Bay in Alaska. That was an act of Congress uh, that, that passed Congress. It basically said for the purposes of uh, this pipeline, um, the National Environmental Policy Act has been fulfilled. And that led to incredible development in the state of Alaska of our natural resources there. Um, and we're still developing those resources to this day. So what we propose here is that we designate some of these infrastructure projects as nationally significant. And that we're going to say that uh, in a year's time, we should develop those, those uh, nationally developed uh, 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 infrastructure projects. So there are a couple that we have in mind. Um, there's a, an important pipeline that needs to be developed in West Virginia and Virginia called the Mountain Valley Pipeline, for example. Keystone certainly would be one of those. Uh, and a couple of these others, uh, you know, uh, Trans-Canada, uh, uh, United States pipelines that need to be developed. Because when we talk about energy uh, independence, we talk about North American energy dependence, and particularly depending on our neighbors to the north to continue to develop these projects. Mike, does that include... Um the building of new refineries is that, is that fall under number two because 
we 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 really do need to build some new refineries and expand uh, refinery capacity here. Yeah, we do, and uh, that would certainly be part of of how, what we're thinking about in terms of this, and because that's part of energy infrastructure as well. Right. As you know, you get oil out of the ground; oil's useless uh, to the common man until it is refined into the products that we use uh, on a daily basis. Yes. If you if your concept of how oil works is from Waterworld, where Kevin Costner drops the flare into the um, into it, the into the bottom of the oil tanker. Um, no, that it, that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> that, I had to work that in there. I, you saw Waterworld, right? I did. <laughs> it's been a while. We might be aging ourselves. I though. think we might be. I think we might be. But I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It's still on cable, so you know the younger viewers have had their opportunity. Right. All right. right. Uh, number three, fix the NEPA permitting process. Now, this now, is something that not it's not just something that's been broken for a while. This is something that Joe Biden deliberately broke to some extent <laughs> with executive order 13990, which threw up even more obstacles in the permitting process and not just uh, in terms of lease sales either. Well, that's exactly right. In fact, the Trump administration put into place some very significant NEPA reforms that put time limits on how long it could take to actually go through a NEPA process. What we're proposing here is that you put a timeline in place that your NEPA process shouldn't go uh, beyond two years. Uh, and that we actually designate that one federal agency is in, in charge of permitting rather than the, the multitude that are in charge right now. So uh, this would fix the NEPA process in a way that will be sustainable for uh, the future and actually get us to be able to build some pipelines and build refineries going forward. So Mike, number number four, I think is interesting because it's it may not be um, it may not be as, clear to people what the what the connection is going to be here but you say the number four is to accelerate liquid uh liquid natural gas liquefied natural gas lng exports and approve pending lng applications now again we're talking about energy more broadly so of course natural gas and lng is going to be part of that but this is part also of getting a return on investment that will allow for expanded investment in oil and, and, and gasoline refining, right? I mean, this is it's a, it's a broad way of making sure that you have enough capital to reinvest once you've set the conditions for investment. That, that's exactly right. The United States has uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of supply of natural gas in our country. There's 400 years of natural gas supply in Pennsylvania alone. Uh, and that's just, those are just gas fields. We're also getting a lot of natural gas um, for, for what's called associated gas that you get when you develop uh, oil uh, uh, in a place like Texas. So we have, we have a lot of natural gas that we can export all over the world while keeping prices low for American consumers. So what this is all about, have you ever been to one of these incredible LNG facilities? There are these beautiful gleaming facilities um, that you have a number of in Texas and Louisiana. Um, but there are a no number of uh, more of these where we want to get these developed as quickly as possible because, uh, first of all, our allies have become very dependent on American LNG to replace Russian natural gas um, as, as they're fighting the war in Ukraine. Uh, and we have the ability to do it. Um, and uh, what, what we need from the United States government is a little bit of assurance that these applications are going to get done uh, so that we can actually build them, get the capital that we need to build them so that we can support both American consumers and European consumers going forward. 
And Mike Summers, the next, that brings us right to number five, which is unlock investment and access to capital. And this is one I kind of want to stress here because one of the complaints that you that we're hearing is, oh, windfall profits, the, they're, they're, the oil companies are doing nothing but stock buybacks. They're not investing in, in expanded production or, or, um, or expanded refining. First off, that's not true. There's, there is investment going on in expanded refinery, refining, for instance, but the reason why you, <laughs> the reason why oil companies buy back stock rather than drill and, and and extract is because it's too costly to do the one under the current regime, and so it's either either invest in yourself or you stick the money in a bank. One of the one of the two. I mean, there's right. there's not a whole lot of places to put capital right now, at least not rationally. When you're looking at a, uh, a, a a policy which is going to eliminate this um, industry, or at least purports to want to uh, eliminate this industry over the short run. And so part of this has to be, first off, you guys are going to have to, as you said earlier, grow up and recognize that this is going to be around for a while. Um, and two, set uh, set the policies in place that, um, that allow for the use of capital back into this. Um, so I, I've kind of answered your question myself, but I want. <laughs> sorry. Well, you, you did answer the question yourself, but there are some specifics that we can get into that yes. uh, are actually holding back capital investment. One of them is a proposal that just came out from the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, that would really limit the amount of capital going, going into the oil and gas industry. They have a new climate disclosure rule that they're trying to advance now, which would really hinder not just the oil and gas industry, but almost every company in the United States as they consider uh, what this disclosure means for them. So what we're proposing here is, first of all, get rid of that SEC climate disclosure regime, which is right. going to be incredibly damaging uh, to um, American businesses, both large and small. Interestingly, this is what's fascinating about this, Ed. Uh, your listeners should go and read the uh, climate letter, this letter on this climate disclosure uh, that uh, that the that BlackRock, one of the largest investment firms in the country, wrote to the SEC. You'd think that API wrote their letter. Uh, they're as opposed to this as uh, as the American Petroleum Institute is because they know what tremendous ramifications it's going to have on the American economy. So when you have API and BlackRock agreeing on something, maybe you're going the wrong direction. So yeah. uh, that this is just about a government regulation that that has gone amok and an SEC that is out of control. Um, I would I would put this together with number six, with, which is dismantling supply chain yes. bottlenecks as well. Because, you know, I've had one API member CEO call me recently and say, you know, even if I wanted to stand up 10 rigs in the Permian right now, I couldn't do it because I can't get enough steel uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, you know, to get that, that product from, out of the ground. So what uh, the supply chain bottlenecks, as you know, this industry is dealing with some of the same challenges that every other industry in the United States is dealing with. We're, you know, we have a workforce shortage and we have supply chain shortages that have come as a consequence of uh, the terrible inflation that we're dealing with right now. So uh, we, we talk about some ways that we can get beyond these supply chain bottlenecks in this plan as well. Um, that would include, you know, potentially lifting some tariffs that are making it much more expensive than it needs to be to extract oil and gas from the ground today. Right, and that's almost a it's almost a bipartisan issue here because some of those tariffs originated in the previous administration too. Yes. So, I mean, this isn't necessarily all pick on Biden Day here. I mean, this is. <laughs> um, 
I mean, it's a bad policy is bad policy. It doesn't matter who's that's advancing right. it. And and so, yeah, I mean, that's not even a partisan issue at this point. And you've already kind of got to number 10. We sort of jumped ahead to number 10. We're going to get to the other three in just a second here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to trying to conserve time here because I know that I can't I can't uh, talk to you for three hours. You've got other things to do here. But uh, <laughs> advancing the energy workforce of the future, you know, talking about advancing STEM programs, not just STEM programs. I mean, we're talking about uh, trades programs too, trade schools. Um, pipe no question. Fitters. I mean, great. There's there's great paying jobs, union jobs, if you will, um, in in um, oil work and in, in production and refining, and we're not producing a workforce that has enough of those skills. That's absolutely right. And one of the most important alliances that we have at API is actually with the building trades unions who do represent, you know, a number of workers in American refineries and those that are building American uh, pipelines. So for example, the Keystone XL pipeline was gonna be entirely built by union labor. Um, you know, most of our refineries are staffed by uh, members of a building trades union. So we have great alliance with them on these issues. And by the way, oil and gas jobs pay twice as much as the average job in the United States. So uh, they have an interest in advancing this industry as well. So this isn't just about uh, you know, spending more money in colleges and universities, but it's also advancing those apprenticeship programs uh, for uh, union members. And because that's how they learn these, these skilled crafts um, that are gonna power the future. So the other three here that we've got on the list, I, I think, you know, advancing lower carbon energy tax provisions. I think that, um, you know, uh, that's, I think that's almost self-explanatory. I'm going to have you talk about that. Protect competition and use of refining technologies and permitting obstruction in natural gas projects. We kind of talked a little bit about um, permit obstructions in one of the earlier uh, things, but let's talk a little bit about the lower carbon energy tax pr uh, provisions. What is it that the industry wants to see in, yeah. in these? So uh, for example, there's a current tax credit called the 45Q tax credit that actually uh, helps us to enhance carbon capture and storage technologies for the future. Uh, there have been discussions in Congress on how do you continue to advance that tax credit, make it uh, so that uh, investment in these projects are more economic. Uh, a number of API member companies have invested a lot of money in this, like ExxonMobil and Occidental Petroleum, for example, are two of the leaders in this space. Um, but they want to continue to make those investments on how you capture carbon before it goes into the atmosphere. Uh, that is an emerging technology within the energy industry. And this is a place where the federal government can play some role to advance it, particularly as their climate goals continue to expand. The one thing we know is clear is that they're never going to meet their climate goals without this industry. And what right. this does is it, it continues to incent uh, cl uh, carbon capture technologies uh, within the oil and gas industry going forward. And, and, and the coal industry as well. I mean, I think that's, that's something no very important for the coal industry too, is, is the carbon capture. I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to why that you don't see more incentives along those lines. Is it because that they just haven't gotten around to it? They haven't thought that one through? Or is it really that they just don't want to give oil, gas, and coal an opportunity to, to succeed, if you will? Because well, they, goes, they're, they're expecting them to go away. It goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this is that, you know, opponents of the oil and gas industry, opponents of the coal industry don't acknowledge the future uh, that will include oil, gas and coal. And while even though we acknowledge the importance of renewables going forward, but let me just give you um, a data point that, uh, you know, a, a lot of the opponents of our industry would never acknowledge, but it is true that in the year of 2022, this year, we will use more coal uh, in the world 
than has ever been used in the history of humanity. Um, that means, which is to say that uh, while a lot of people still are talking about the energy transition, you know, the world is still consuming a lot of energy from, from you know, dirtier sources. You know, a lot of the world is still using dung to power their homes or to heat their homes. A lot of people are still using wood. Um, very, it, is, it has never happened in history where we have transitioned from one source of energy to another source of energy. What's happened is, is that new energy sources come on and we're using more energy. We're not using less energy, we're using more energy. So these are more often, they are energy additions, not energy transitions. Right. We're still using wood. We're, some people are still using dung to, to uh, cook uh, in their homes. And we're still using a lot of coal. We're using three times more coal today than we used in the 1960s. So uh, we know that we're gonna use a lot more oil and gas in the future. We know that we're gonna use a lot more renewables in the future, but we also know the world's gonna need a lot more power in the future as well as people you know, continue to advance into the middle class. And so what I'd suggest is again, let's have that adult conversation. Let's bring everybody to the table and talk about what we need to do to power the future going forward. Uh, and you know, we wanna be part of that conversation. Mike Summers from American Petroleum Institute. Where can people go to find out more and how can they get involved? Yes, please go to api.org. You can learn about our 10 and 22 plan there and get more engaged. And I'd also encourage folks to sign up for our program that we call Energy Citizens, which is a grassroots effort, effort uh, in the United States to advance uh, our energy future going forward. Uh, you can do that as, as part of, uh, you know, in any state in the country, but we have big chapters in Ohio and, and uh, in Texas and uh, in Colorado as well. So uh, we'd, we'd love for people to get more engaged with Energy Citizens as well. Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Ed. Great to be with you. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me today is Michael Pack. He's the co-author of Created Equal. Clarence Thomas, in his own words, also was behind the movie of the same name that came out a couple of years ago, which was Fantastic. I actually saw that in the theater with, with a few friends of mine and joined in the theater by lots of people who probably would have been friends of mine because they really enjoyed the movie as well. Michael, great to have you with us today. Great to be on. Thank you for having me, Ed. So we were just talking about this right before we started recording, right? And you asked me if I'd seen the movie. And we actually went to the theater to see this because we were so excited to see this movie. And I had read uh, My Grandfather's Son. So I was familiar with mm. you know some of Clarence Thomas's... Um, history. Uh, and so I was able to track along. I, there was still really good information in that that I hadn't gleaned from his book, or maybe that I just hadn't really absorbed from his book. But it's so much better in mm. in in the documentary format that you guys did. And I got to tell you, it was extremely well received by the audience that was there. Well, that's great. I think the best way to see it is, is in a theater. That's how we designed it. That's great. And it was in a lot of theaters. It was very successful. It was in 110 theaters until COVID shut it down. Uh, then it was, it was nationally broadcast on PBS, and then it's and it's been streaming ever since. And your viewers and listeners can see it by going to manifoldproductions.com, our website where we list every place it's streaming, including Amazon, but you know Netflix, Salem, Newsmax, many many places. And the book, which is just out this week, is available at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever. So you can do both. Michael, may I may I relate to you what the 
what the one biggest laugh line was in the entire movie? Because there was, yeah. I mean, it was very serious. There was very serious things going on in this movie. There was one universal laugh line. I'm sure you already know what this is because I'm sure you I, sat I, in some theaters, right? Yes, right. I think I do. <laughs> it's, it comes after Clarence Thomas's, uh, the first, the clip of Clarence Thomas's first um, confirmation hearing to the Supreme Court where Joe Biden is trying to uh, say, and I'm, I'm going to try to quote this. I mean, this has really stuck with me, right? It's the only time I ever actually saw this clip, and it's really stuck with me for the two and a half years since I've seen it, which was, um, when we talk about originalism, I know what you're talking about, and you know what I know, that I know what you're talking about, and I know that you know that I know what I'm talking about, and it's very clear that Joe Biden doesn't have any idea what he's talking about, and then, so you, you get some giggles during this, right? Yeah, Clarence Thomas says, you know, I sat there, I, you, you sit there, you have to nod when you have no idea what they're talking which, about which is a great line but the it, biggest it, laugh the biggest laugh point was when you cut back to clarence thomas that famously um stoic look on his face <laughs> after yes. that right he had to put up with a lot in that hearing and it was far from ended no like, no 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 it gets grim after that by the way so there's not a lot of laughs after that either but uh Although in the very last part of the film where we have, a, where, you know, it's chronological, as you know, and right. part of his time on the court, we have him chatting with his clerks where you get to hear a little yes. bit of his booming laugh. Um, so you do get a hint of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is something that I mean, it, it's it's kind of absorbed, I think, into into the public knowledge. I actually had an opportunity when he published My Grandfather's Son to sit down and have dinner with him at the Heritage Foundation. I was invited to take part in this private thing. It wasn't off the record. It was very clear that we could talk about it, write about it. He was fine with that. And he was such a raconteur. Yeah. I mean, you guys must have just been thinking that you had died and gone to heaven because this guy can keep you entertained for hours and hours and hours. He is such a brilliant and genuinely um, friendly, uh, open guy. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine that anybody actually dislikes this guy. He's very charming. Well, it's hard to... If you meet him, it's hard to dislike him. I, and and one of the reasons we made the film the way we did is to give people who haven't been as lucky as you are to have dinner with him the chance to spend a few hours with Justice Thomas in the case of the film or more in the case of the book. And the film is based on a very long interview I conducted with Justice Thomas over several months, 25 hours, longer than any Supreme Court justice has sat for an interview ever, and six hours with Ginny, and they're the only ones in the film, because I wanted Clarence Thomas to look at the camera and tell his story, because as you say, he's a great storyteller. And going from his birth all the way to his time on the court, it's a very dramatic story. He's a great teller of it. I found that there was no one better. And, uh, you know, it goes, you know, it starts in the segregated South and poverty and, you know, difficulty, and then getting values from his grandfather and these nuns only to become a radical and reject that. And, and it's just a, a very, very dramatic story. Um, and, a, and a great success story to go from, you know, raised by grandparents who were functionally illiterate to the highest court in the land from the segregated South is an amazing story. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, the question I have, and, and this is, you know, we're, uh, if, if you've seen the documentary and if you've been smart enough to pick up my grandfather's son and read it through. Um, you might think that you're getting everything that you need to get out of Clarence Thomas. First off, I know that you guys did something like 30 something hours though with That's Clarence right. Thomas. So, I mean, 
Right. We're getting we're getting a slice of the time that you spent with Clarence Thomas. What else can people? I mean, what was what does the book add to that record? Um, how does it contribute to knowing this really monumental Supreme Court justice um, uh, better? Well, we we did talk to Justice Thomas and Jenny for over thirty hours, and it's only a two hour film. And my co-author, Mark Paletta, had the great idea that we should put some of the material that didn't make it into the film into the book. And the book is 95% new material. So in your case, wow. you've seen the film, but 95% of it will be new. And you find out more about every aspect of his life, from his grandfather to his time as a radical, to his return to his faith and his principles, and to what he thinks about judging, what he thinks about Roe, you know, to take, make it relevant to today. Sure. But I think from my point of view, the thing you really get a sense of is I ask him questions and he answers and you get a sense, you see how he's thinking. For the film, we had to keep his answers relatively short, but he has a very discursive mind. You know, he starts in one place, goes to another, comes back to another, and we left that in in the book and you see how his mind works. And it's a fascinating thing as well as learning the details. Well, definitely, absolutely, and um, I, I mean, I haven't read the book yet. I, I just haven't had a chance to grab it yet. So, and I come into this thinking, well, that's okay. I can do an interview without without actually reading the book because I've I've seen the movie. I've I've, yeah. I've read my grandfather's son. Obviously, I'm probably a good part of the target audience that you're looking at is people who maybe were intrigued by this and wanted to find out uh, find out more about Clarence Thomas. And I, I mean, I think that that's absolutely a uh, a, a great target, but I think it's going to land wider than that. And I think after this week, right after Bruin, mm -hmm. after Dobbs, after um, and today, I mean, even today we're recording this hey. on Monday. He, you know, he had that sort of a side about Sullivan. He's been talking about <laughs> Sullivan now for at least a couple yeah. of years, right? And yeah. I, I think that it's it's really critical to get a good look at um, Clarence Thomas and see what makes him tick. And uh, and, and I think that there's going to be a lot more interest in that after this, after the last few days. I, I agree with you, and I, and I hope so. I mean, one of the reasons we wanted the film initially broadcast on PBS is we wanted people, in addition to the ones like you that do agree with them and, and know something about them, we wanted people who maybe didn't agree with them, maybe in the, the middle of the political spectrum especially, to know where he's coming from. I, I think whether you agree with him or not, you should really understand how he comes by his principles and what those principles are. I mean, one of the shocking things alone maybe it shouldn't be shocking is all the vituperative language and, and 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 threats of violence that have emerged against clarence thomas and the other justices in the wake of dobbs and i and i think a lot of it includes a misrepresentation of who he is and what how, how he thinks and i think if people maybe not those people protesting in front of his house but people who are not sure what to think would read the book and see the movie they get an understanding of it and maybe not see it in in such um, overdrawn way. I mean, he sees himself as a keeper of the principles of the founding enshrined in the Declaration of the Constitution, and, and he attempts to live up to that. And you could see why in the film. And that's why we also call it created equal. Right. And uh, I mean, because that's really the basis. It was, it was the basis of his uh, comment in Bruin, right? He talked about how he, he went all the way back to uh, Dred Scott to basically read the riot act to justice Taney yeah, <laughs> for one right. one last time which was yeah, actually right. a brilliant discourse right on um on on that and i think it was a remark it, it wasn't overlooked i don't want to say it was overlooked but i think it might have gotten underplayed 
in a lot of the media reporting because I think that that was a very telling passage in that. Um, there's a Los Angeles Times article out this morning, a column from Erica Smith that talks about it's, you know, California ready to have black people carry guns, mm. which actually, I mean, it, 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 that is not a false headline. That's kind of the thrust of her argument, but the argument's better than what it sounds like because she's talking about how maybe, maybe progressives aren't terribly keen to see uh, black people carrying guns either. And, um, and she does cite that quite a bit. And I think that that is something that's really going to stick when we're talking about uh, Bruin jurisprudence in the future. Well, Clarence Thomas has talked about in previous gun cases, maybe it was Heller, I'm not sure, that issue of blacks owning guns. And a lot of early 19th century um, gun control laws were about stopping blacks with guns. What scares a, a, a white Southern racist more than blacks with guns? And a lot of the a lot of the things were targeted on that. Whereas blacks wanted guns to defend themselves against the Ku Klux Klan or anybody else. So J Justice Thomas feels that very directly. You know, he comes from the South, the segregated South. You know, his it's not that many generations back that his ancestors were slaves. You know, he takes that all pretty seriously. You know, uh, Michael, one of the things that you write, and you've written a, uh, an op-ed, obviously, this is something that's uh, uh, taken from the book. This was uh, last week when the book was published. Um, you talk about Clarence Thomas's reverence for the principle that all men are created equal. Uh, mm -hmm. But even beyond that, um, I mean, that's certainly, I don't want to say even beyond that, but in incorporated into that are all of the other principles on which this nation was founded. And I think it's remarkable and we're talking about racism, we're talking about racist attacks on Clarence Thomas himself, um, that a uh, that a black man rose up from a, an environment where those principles clearly were not being followed in, in the environment in which he grew up, raised by a grandfather who basically told him to get over it and get on with life, uh, which I think his grandfather is a remarkable figure all in, all on his own, and talk about him being at the funeral and how that was really sort of a crucible moment for him. Well, he, he, you know, he had had ups and downs with his grandfather, as you say, when right. he came born, he was about eight years old, he, coming from dire poverty, his mother dropped him off and his grandfather gave him sort of tough love, hard work, discipline, even though his grandfather himself was functionally illiterate, had less than a third grade education, sent Justice Thomas to these parochial schools where the nuns also gave him discipline, hard work. And, and sort of core values and a, and a rigorous curriculum. And Justice Thomas thrived and he wanted, he for a while wanted went to the seminary and wanted to be a priest. And it's only in the late 60s as he, lo he lost his vocation, he encountered some racism at the, at the seminary. This was an all white seminary that he was one of the first blacks to desegregate. And on 19, 1968, watching Martin Luther King Jr. is being shot on TV, a white seminarian said, I hope that SOB dies. And that was enough for Justice Thomas. He, he flipped and he decided his grandfather was a sucker. He became a black radical. So, and then his grandfather kicked him out of the house. He didn't want to be a priest, doesn't want to live. If he can make his own decisions, he's on his own. The only home he knows, he's kicked out. He has to go to Holy Cross where he has a full scholarship and his radicalism continues. And a lot of the film in the book is then his journey back to his grandfather's values. And he had come back pretty fully by the time of his grandfather's funeral and he had sort of reconciled with his grandfather then, not as completely as he wanted. But when he returned from his grandfather's funeral to Washington, he was thinking, well, look, my grand, his, my grandfather died and then his grandmother died shortly thereafter. And 
I'm sitting here working in the Reagan administration. I'm constantly attacked as a conservative black. I'm hauled before Congress all the time. What am I accomplishing is really worth it. Why am, what am I doing here? I mean, what's the purpose of it all? Maybe I should just give it up and go be a lawyer and practice somewhere. And he had a, a really moment of decision and he decided to sort of rededicate his life to what he thought of as his grandfather's principles and the principles of the nuns who raised him. And he thought those principles, and I agree with them, although his grandfather might not be able to articulate this, were enshrined in the declaration and reflected in the constitution. And that those founding principles were the principles he was raised in and that he could best honor his grandfather by dedicating his life to that. And that's what he did. And it was a, it was a, a turning point for him. Michael, one of the things that you get in the book is an exchange that you have about when Clarence Thomas goes back to Savannah, and this was actually written up in the New York Post as well in an excerpt, um, which I find kind of interesting because mm -hmm. we, we hear a lot about him growing up in Savannah. I've been to Savannah a couple times. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a pretty city within sort of that historic district. And once you get outside of it, as Clarence Thomas talk, talks with you about, there's a lot of pathologies that didn't exist when he was a kid. There were pathologies that existed when he was a kid that don't exist any longer, you know, mostly about Jim Crow and racism, but they've been replaced, uh, or overt racism, I should say. They've been replaced with other pathologies. And I found as you talk about how, how when you discuss these things with him, you, you get that sort of circuit of how Clarence Thomas tackles things in his mind. And I think that this answer is is part of that i mean this is more or less a question about nostalgia and personal change and he really sort of trans transmutes this into uh reflections on public policy on the laws of unintended consequences there's it's a whole series of these observations that he makes uh, tell us a little bit about that exchange first off and uh, and and is this sort of emblematic of the type of thing that we can expect from uh from the book uh, created equal um, uh, as we read it. I think it is. I mean, you you describe it well, Ed. I mean, I did ask him that question about returning to Savannah, and I expected a nostalgic answer. I thought it would like help me tie the film together. You know, I bookend it, starts there and ends there. But he gave a very different kind of answer, and he talked about urban renewal, changing the neighborhood. He loved the neighborhood he grew up. It was segregated. They were poor. But he thought it was pretty much of a healthy community. He talks in the book, um, so something in the book, not in the film, about going to a local barbershop and the diversity of opinions there, you know, Garveyites and uh, communists and, you know, people on the, uh, you know, people who NAACP types and people on the other side. And he thought it all worked and the families were intact mostly, like, like or, or, you know, like his with his grandfather. And he really felt urban renewal that smashed those neighborhoods and bulldozed them and put up these projects changed it. And he talks about his grandfather talking about that, which I think is even more unusual. I mean, his grandfather, another generation, not so educated, but he saw it clearly. He used the phrase, um, they're tearing down neighborhoods and building buildings. Right. And that's a great, his grandfather said that. And that's the way he sees it too. You know, there's, there's, he this is the thing justice thomas hates most and he talks about it in the book is these theories like urban renewal or like busing that are supposed to help people and if they don't the people with the theories that aren't actually on the ground don't care as he says at one point it's like instant coffee if anybody remembers that you know <laughs> add water you know have the theory add people and um 
That is what he hates, things that aren't actually changing life on the ground, or in the case of urban renewal, making it worse. And he gives a very complicated answer. You actually um, you describe it very well. And, and that's the kind of way he thinks. Everything is always pulled in. His grandfather, the nuns, his, his background, Supreme Court cases, it, it, all, it all goes behind his thinking. And it's worth it to sort of see how that, I mean, it's it's not more than worth it. It's inspiring to see how that works. And, and I think there's a lot of that in the book. And I have to say, my co-author, Mark Paletta, was the one that came up with the idea that we shouldn't let all that 25 hours of interviews go to waste. It was only less than two hours in the film. And there's a lot of it in the in the book. Uh, and I, I couldn't agree more. You don't want to let that go to waste. The book, again, just to, we're not done yet, but the book is created equal Clarence Thomas in his own words. It's out now, so you can get this now. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about his relations um, with the people who are actually on the court, because mm. we we hear a lot about this, right? We hear a lot about how there's divisions. Had the leak in May. Now this is, of course, is well after you you and uh, uh, and Mark Paletta uh, spoke with Clarence Thomas. I don't know if you've even had a chance to uh, catch up with them since the leak, and I'm sure they're not really talking about it, but um, about lots of divisions, but. There are certainly friendships here that blossom out. And I think one of the most surprising things that we've seen the last couple of weeks is all these really controversial, uh, very um, almost bitter divisions are being exposed in the final decisions of this term. But Sonia Sotomayor getting up in front of a, uh, a progressive legal conference talking about what a genuinely nice man Clarence Thomas is, how he is the only justice who knows everybody's name in the building and is genuinely interested in their lives. Um, in defense of him, because there was apparently a remark that was directed um, to her about him. So what did you learn? What did you and, and Mark Paletta learn, Michael, from, from uh, interviewing Clarence Thomas about the relationships on the court and friendships and what influence that those have? Well, we learned different things. I had never met Justice Thomas before this interview, and I conducted the interview. But Mark was an advisor to the film and a co-author of gotcha. the film. And he's been an intimate of Justice Thomas's since 91. So he learned different things. And he talks to the Thomases all the time. They're personal friends. They're, they're not personal friends of mine. I'm a documentary filmmaker. He's in their world. So I'm not sure that um, he learned quite as much as I learned. I really I'm in the position of the audience. You know, we are not right. lawyers, we're not constitutional experts. I ask the questions I think my viewers would want to know. Um, so in terms of relationship on the court, he spoke at great length about Justice Scalia. You will not be surprised to hear it. I mean, right. And, and that was, I think, the, the most intense relationship on the court that he had. And I think he feels Justice Scalia's loss. I mean, their friendship was often mischaracterized that he, he, Justice Scalia led him around and dictated his opinions, but it, it is not true. And he is more often than Justice Scalia convinced Justice Scalia to join him. Um, and, um, you know, so it's really, you know, he, he, he really talks about that and, and what that meant to him. Um, but he also talks about the civility of the court. I think that's important to him that you see reflected in Justice Sotomayor's comments. I mean, they have to be able to talk civilly, and they do. And that's one of the really bad things about the leak is it breaks that aspect of the court. You know, it starts to look like every other branch of government, every political branch. And that's really a problem. So, 
you know, the relationships are interesting. It's always a mysterious place to those of us who are not uh, constitutional lawyers and on the right. courts. So it's interesting to sort of peek behind. Uh, and you, you, he talks a lot in the book about the process of working on the court and how it works and how they come to opinions and what he does. And I found that all pretty eye-opening. I knew like nothing about it. So it was for me, all news. So, and, and maybe for some of your uh, listeners, it'll be too. I think that maybe we're, well, again, I, I have to say I'm more immersed in the news than most people. So I think we're learning a little bit, especially in the in, in the wake of the leak, how these things work, right? And how the process is of developing opinions, because we've actually been in the unfortunate position of seeing that process midstream, which we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have been able to see. And, uh, and I agree with you. I think it did a lot of damage to the court. The, um, Last question. I know we got to wrap this up here pretty quick, but and I want people to get to the book, so I don't want to answer everything here in it. In it even if it was possible, I wouldn't want to do that. But when you, after you got done talking with with uh, Justice Thomas and, and his wife and gone over all these issues, how much uh, how much more clear do you see your way? to what Thomas is writing in these in these pieces, whether he's writing the controlling opinion as he did in Bruin or whether he's writing, uh, you know, concurrences or dissents. Um, how much more, I, I'm, I'm certain it had a lot of impact on that, but I'm, I'm curious as to what the impact was for you when you're looking at this, able to predict it a little bit better or just able to recognize how, how Clarence Thomas is working? Well, we did write an op-ed, Mark and I, about what we expected Justice Thomas to do before these opinions. And we did say, it's not surprising if you've seen the movie or read the book. He, I mean, he sticks with his principles and those principles are clear enough and you can tell. I mean, each case is different and they decided on the merits, but his general principles are, are crystal clear and haven't changed. Read the book, see the movie, and that is that is clear. But the other thing you get, look, I think it really transforms the way I see the whole thing happening for me. I mean, you know, he, just like his concurrence um, in the Dobbs case, you know, he cares about things like substantive due process. He thinks these cases have to be rightly decided. It's not all about coming up to the right end. You know, that's the sort of progressive living constitution sort of jurisprudence. Right. He cares about process. And in fact, in the Scalia section, he talks about that's something he shared with the Justice Scalia he ties it back to their Catholic um, upbringing, but other, there are probably other factors too. They care about how you get to the truth, and that's what originalism is about. Is it really there in the public understanding of the language at the time it was written? And he feels strongly that something like substantive due process makes no sense. He called it an oxymoron in his concurrence. If it's substantive, how come it's process oriented? And he points to something like the privileges and immunities clause. But people think when he does that, that means he's shooting down everything that had any relationship to substantive due process. But he's really saying things need to be grounded in the proper constitutional text, not necessarily prejudging whether to throw it out or not, but that where does it really come from? And it matters to him. And you see it in his life story, that process matters. He cared about how things were done. If he didn't do it, you know, in, in the segregated South, if you get off the track, you can be in trouble. I mean, from simple things like that to just believing that you need laws and process to protect us in this Republic. And I agree with him there, but I, I kind of see it feelingly from having seen having interviewed him and made the film and and put the book together with mark 
Well, the book, again, is Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words by Mark Pauletta and uh, Michael Pack. You can get it right now. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it wherever fine books are sold, as they say. <laughs> and, Michael, what was the um, URL? What was the website that um, that people can go to to learn more about this? They can go to manifoldproductions.com, and they'll be able to find out how to stream the Clarence Thomas film. And it's on, like, seven or eight different websites. So if you're already connected to one, it'll be easy. So uh, I think you can both stream the film and read the book. They are good companions. I think I want to do both, actually. And I've seen the film. I've seen it in the theaters. I think I want to go back and watch it again now after talking with you. Michael Pack, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ed. Great to be on your show. Stand by for more from The Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Thanks for tuning in to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast edition. If you like what you saw, be sure to subscribe at each of the different platforms. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Rumble, we're on YouTube, and we're at the Town Hall Media Player. So be sure to subscribe. Subscriptions are important. Really do appreciate that. It's free. Uh, be sure to like the video if you like that as well. We want to get the word out as much as we possibly can. Really want to thank you for being with us. And while you're at it, if you're at any one of the town hall websites, especially hotair.com, be sure to subscribe to our VIP program or our VIP, VIP Gold program, which has uh, extra benefits for our subscribers. That is a paid subscription service, but that money goes to fund important uh, initiatives such as Julio Rosas's on-the-road journalism, first-person journalism, journalism you can trust from the border, from the unrest in cities, and all other sorts of things. We do all sorts of fun things with our VIP Gold uh, subscription members, including our VIP Gold chat that I do with Cam Edwards on Wednesday afternoons. Cam Edwards from BearingArms.com. Each of our sites have their own live chat editions and their own uh, streaming shows for VIP Gold members. So be sure to subscribe to the Hot Air uh, VIP, VIP Gold, which goes across the entire Town Hall media spectrum, and especially to the Ed Morrissey Show podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.